Hi everyone, great to see you here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name is Rowan Kemp. Great to see you here. I'm senior staff worker here with the EU. Will you join me in prayer as we come to reflect together upon the Word of God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity just to be here for the next 50 minutes or so. We pray, Father, that as we reflect on your Word together, that you'd fulfil your promise and that you would speak to us through it. We might hear your voice. We pray, Father, that you would be at work in each of our hearts so that we might respond to your word in a way that pleases and honours you above all else. We pray this, Father, because we want the glory for every aspect of our life to go to you. We pray it in his name, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had a defining moment? I'm going to give you 30 seconds just to think. A defining moment of your life would be... Forget 30 seconds, I don't have that time. Um, anyone got a suggestion? A defining moment of your life? I go, got to sort of yell out loudly or... Birth. There is a very good candidate for a defining moment. Anything else? That's it really. No other defining moments, you just are. No, come on, think about it. Something else that that really has been a defining moment in your life? When you bought a dictionary. (laughs) I remember with great joy the first time I bought a dictionary too, actually. It's funny, I hadn't thought of that. Go on, what else? Scoring your first try. Scoring your first try. For me, I'm still waiting for that defining moment. (laughs) Yes. Any others? First day at school. First day at school, Yes. Uh, I'll give you another one. First word. You probably can't remember it, but for many people who know you all your life, they'd say there was a defining moment, the first word. You know, For many of us, maybe it, it, it was significant in that it was the first time we spoke. Maybe what we said wasn't so surprising. Maybe it was your mum, dad, that sort of tends to be what it is. Maybe though your first word was actually no. <laughs> that sort of is much more defining, isn't it? And often defining moments... They define you because they tell you something about your character. There's another guy, another person who's spoken at the EU this year, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. Uh, you'll just have to work it out, and I'll tell you it's not me. And their first word wasn't a first word, it was actually a first sentence. The very first thing they ever said, so rumour has it, was a sentence. So, right, this person has a prodigious intellect, right? Um, but it's not, not a regular EU staff worker. It's been a guest who's spoken at the EU this year and their first sentence was this. So rumour has it. Mum, the petunias are beautiful. <laughs> Defining moments. What would it be for your life? Maybe it was your first kiss. Maybe it was your first job. Maybe it was the first time you failed an exam at uni and so I realised, oh, I actually do need to do some work. I don't know what the defining moments would be. If you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would be the defining moments in your walk with the Lord Jesus? The day you came to faith? That time you first understood grace? That time you really understood the love of God? What would be defining moments for you? We come today to look at a particular chapter in God's Word, Exodus chapter 32, which is a defining moment in the relationship between God, the one true God who really is, 
and his people, his chosen people at that time, the nation of Israel. It is a defining moment and like all defining moments, it gives you an insight into the character of the people involved. It tells you something about the character of God's people and basically it's less than savoury. In fact, that's a great overstatement. It is shockingly terrible. The insight you get into the character of God's people. But it also lets you in, gives you an insight into the character of the, of the one true God, the God who really is, the Lord, Yahweh. So we're going to look at this particular defining moment today. So I hope you've got your Bible there. It'd be great if you could open it up, uh, chapter 32 of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible here and you've got one at home, it really would be a great idea to bring it along to EU public meetings because over the next three weeks as we come towards the end of the year, we're looking at these last couple of chapters of Exodus and I'm going to be pointing you to particular sections of the text each week. It'd be really helpful if you brought it along or download it from the internet, print it out or if you don't have a Bible you'd like to get one, please come and see me afterwards and we'll make sure that we can get you a Bible or come to the information desk, we'll get you one. So first of all, let's get in the zone. Let's get in the zone for this passage. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been part of the people of God who've come through the events of the Exodus. What would that be like? You've come through the plagues. You've come through the Red Sea. You've been eating the manna that God provides each day. You've been drinking the water that he provides out of the rock. You've had miraculous victories over your enemies. And now you've come to Mount Sinai. You've seen the lightning, you've the clouds, you've heard the thunder. You heard the Lord speak the ten words, the ten commands. You heard them with your own ears. Moses has gone up the mountain at least five times to meet with the Lord. And the Lord through Moses has told you that you, of all the nations of the world, you are to be his treasured possession. You are to be his kingdom of holy priests. He's established his covenant with you out of all the peoples of the world. You are to heed his words, you are to obey his voice and you've agreed to this at least on three separate occasions. You've said, yes, we will be in this relationship. We will do this. It's been an incredible experience, right? What was the point of it all? Well, if you fast forward through 40 years later, Moses is addressing the people or the people's descendants at the other end of their wilderness wanderings and this is what he says about the point of it all. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. He says, To you it was shown so that you would acknowledge the Lord, Yahweh, as God. There is no other besides him. The whole point of this exercise, the whole point of these experiences was so that you would know that Yahweh is the true and only God. And so now Moses has been called up the mountain again by the Lord and he's been there for 40 days and nights. He's been called up by the Lord to receive the Ten Commandments in written form on two stone tablets. And also, as we saw earlier in the semester, Moses is up there and the Lord is giving him instructions to build a tabernacle, a sanctuary, a tent, so that the Lord might dwell in his presence in the very midst of his people. That's what Moses is getting, all the instructions whilst he's up there on the mountain. So that brings us to chapter 32, which could have a couple of different headings. It could have the heading, Meanwhile, because Moses is up on the mountain and now we're going what's down the bottom. But I thought that was a bit lame, so we won't do Meanwhile. I thought, 
what happened down below? But that seemed a bit lame too. So, this is what I called it. It's a cow of a decision. (laughs) That is what we're talking about today. A cow of a decision. Will you look with me at Exodus 32? Got it open in front of you? Maybe you can share with the person around. Exodus 32, 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods, and that could also just as rightly be translated a god, make a god. It's, whether it's gods or god, you can't tell from the original language because the same word means both. Make gods or a god for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mould and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, or your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice that the people, God's people, make no mention of Yahweh. They don't mention it in their request in verse 1. They don't mention him in their response to the golden calf that Aaron makes for them in verse 4. Remember, everything that's happened to them so far in coming out of Egypt and, and everything that's happened to them at Mount Sinai was to make the single point that Yahweh is God alone. And that was the first of the ten words that they'd heard the Lord say in the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? From Exodus chapter 20, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. That was the first command. And yet here they are asking for another God and proclaiming when they see this cow that Aaron makes, they're saying, this is the cow God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Given everything that's happened, doesn't that seem, frankly, incredible? Doesn't it seem astounding that that's what they would say? And obviously it's completely out of place for these people that God has chosen and that he's saved and with whom he's established this covenant. Now notice to Aaron's response there in verse 5. I think Aaron's response is a little bit different but just as bad. I wonder if Aaron is trying to rescue the situation in some sort of ham-fisted way. It says there, when Aaron saw the people's reaction, here's our God who brought us out of Egypt, Aaron tries to marry that with his understanding of Yahweh. He attempts what's called syncretism, where you attempt to amalgamate true worship of Yahweh with the people's desire for an idol to worship. So he builds this altar before the golden calf and proclaims a festival to Yahweh where they offer sacrifices though to this cow. So what are we to make of all this? 
I think it's really helpful at this point for us to reflect on what's happened here in the light of the rest of the Christian scriptures and see what they say about this particular event because it then actually gives us a better understanding of what's going on. So I'm going to spend most of my time here exploring what do the rest of the Bible have to say about this, this event that's recorded for us in Exodus 32. So I'll give you a couple of examples. You might like to jot down these references and look them up later. Psalm 106. Psalm 106 looks back on the golden calf moment this way. This is what it says. I'm quoting from verses 19 to 22 of Psalm 106. The psalmist says this, They made a calf at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a cast image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Saviour, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Now, there's two things that the psalmist says here. What have God's people done? They've exchanged the glory of the one true God for the image of a cow. Now, no matter how, way, how you put it, that's a pretty dumb exchange to take the glory of the one true God who created and sustains all things and swap his glory for a golden cow made out of some jewellery. That's a pretty dumb sort of exchange. And yet, according to Paul in Romans 1, that's the same exchange that has gripped all of humanity, that we exchange the glory of the one true God for images of created things. And even worse, staying with Psalm 106 there, God's people not only exchanged his glory, but they forgot him. Now, that's a pretty short memory because it was only 40 days before that they had the amazing you know, thunder and lightning show and heard God's voice speak to them. 40 days later, they've forgotten God the one true God and they're asking for a new one one that Aaron can make for them now this request for an idol God didn't just come out of nowhere though it wasn't just a, um, an absent minded sort of forgetting of Yahweh who'd saved them according to Acts 7 which is another reference you might like to write down Acts 7 this was actually a willful turning back to Egypt listen to what Stephen says in Acts 7 verse 39 and 40 Acts 7 39 and 40 He's speaking to the Jews and he says, Our ancestors were unwilling to obey Moses. They pushed him aside and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make gods for us. See, God's own people wanted a God like they'd had back in Egypt. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 20, you'll see that God's people when they were in Egypt weren't worshipping the Lord. They weren't worshipping Yahweh. When God's people were there in Egypt, they were worshipping the Egyptian gods. That's what Ezekiel 20 says. And now the Lord has brought them out mightily so that they would know that Yahweh is the true God. He's redeemed them for that purpose. And now in their hearts they're turning back to the gods like they had in Egypt. Again, given what Yahweh had done for them, this is just incredible, I think, that so quickly they go back to the one, the sort of gods from whom they've been rescued. But then, if you know anything of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll know that God's people in the Old Testament are almost constantly immersed in some form of idolatry. It really is incredible when you think about it, isn't it, that God's own people are struggling with idolatry, which is what we're seeing in Exodus 32. 
If I'll just throw at you a few other examples through Israel's history. Jump forward to the person of Joshua, right, after Moses sort of dies on the edge of the Promised Land. Joshua leads them in. Joshua leads them on this great conquest of the Promised Land. Right at the end of Joshua's life, after they've conquered the land, in Joshua chapter 24, what does he tell God's people? He says, put away the gods from Egypt that you've still got among you. They've kept the Egyptian gods all the way through. Jump ahead to the great high point of Israelite history under the time of King Solomon, right? And what was Solomon's downfall? He married many foreign women who God had told him not to marry. What was the problem with that was God had said, if you marry them, they will turn your heart so that you worship their gods. And what happens? When Solomon was old, we're told there in 1 Kings chapter 11, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart and he went after other gods. He wasn't faithful to Yahweh like his father David had been. Great King Solomon. And then because of that, the kingdom splits. Northern kingdoms, ten, of, ten tribes with Jeroboam and the southern kingdoms, are two tribes of Judah. The, Jeroboam, what does Jeroboam do? Get this, this is astounding. He says, oh, well, I don't want you going down to the capital Jerusalem, which is down in Judah. So, what I know what I'll do. I'll make two golden cows. <laughs> this is 1 Kings 12. Two golden cows, I'll set them up and you can go and worship them in your worship of Yahweh. He does exactly the golden calf. He, 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 let's do it again, but with two of them in two different places for ease of worship. And you can just go on, go all the way through to, say, the prophet Ezekiel. By this time, the northern tribes have been wiped out because of their idolatry. Southern two tribes of Judah. They end up in exile. There's Ezekiel, the prophet, in exile and he gets a vision of what's going on back in Jerusalem before it's wiped out. What does he see? In the very temple of Yahweh, there are people standing there with their back to the Holy of Holies and worshipping the sun. And all around the temple is full of idols. God's people, right throughout the Old Testament, are immersed in idolatry. It just blows the mind, doesn't it? And then this is the bit that really strikes us. And we start with this. In the New Testament, similar things are said of God's people. Let me give you a few examples. You might like to jot some of these down. Some examples from the New Testament, some warnings about the danger of idolatry for God's people today. Here's one from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Paul says, but now I'm writing to you, writing to Christians, I'm writing to you so that you do not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or robber. Do not even eat with such a one. There was a danger there that Paul could see in the community, the people who claimed the name of Christ, claimed to be Christian, but actually were engaged in, amongst other things, idolatry. Or a bit later in the same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. It was a problem for God's people. Is idolatry really a problem for us today? Paul seems to think so. He's speaking about events in Israel's life in the Old Testament when he writes this, and this is a good reference to write down, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 7. 
This is where the Apostle Paul reflects on the golden calf. What does he make of the golden calf for Christians today? So this is relevant for us. This is what he says. He says, these things occurred as examples for us. When you read Exodus 32, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, you're to see that that happened and was recorded as an example for you. And he goes on, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Paul's quoting there just from our passage in Exodus 32 verse 6. Exodus 32 is a warning for you and me, people who call ourselves Christian, don't become an idolater. Now we're under a different covenant, the new covenant established in Jesus' death and resurrection, but we're still God's chosen people. Now through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is still God. He's still the same God. He's still jealous for his name. And so the one true God, the God who really is, is telling you and I today via 1 Corinthians 10 that we're to take away from this incident, the golden calf incident, we're to take away, don't fall into idolatry like our forefathers did. Don't desire evil as they did. Now, anything can be an idol. I think the very word idol has uh, just been uh, domesticated these days by you know, Australian idol and everything else. But just about anything you can worship. You can worship fame. You can worship success. You could worship pleasure. You could worship sexuality. You can worship family, actually. Anything that takes the number one place in your life that place that has Yahweh's name on it alone for every human creature. Anything that takes that number one place is an idol. It's what we worship. And around us we see people worshipping all sorts of gods that aren't really God. And surely that's not going to be the case amongst us, right? Surely Christians have got their act together. They understand who God truly is. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely we're not going to fall to idolatry. But, well, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, you've turned from idols and come to the true God. Surely we're not going to turn back, but that seems to be Paul's concern, that Christians really will worship idols. In fact, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 to say this, he says, if you think you are standing, watch out that you don't fall. So if you're sitting there today and going, well, idolatry is not my problem, God through the Apostle Paul is saying, if you think you're standing, watch out that you don't fall. Idolatry is a real danger for you and for me. How so? Well, I think most of the time we're in the danger of doing what Aaron did. We want to marry together Christian faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with some certain worldliness. We're syncretists. We try to Put the two together. And syncretism takes all sorts of forms. Maybe it's our desire for a relationship, a particular relationship with somebody. We want to be followers of Christ, yes, but we really want this relationship. Maybe it takes the form of um, pride or worldly success. We want to be a follower of Jesus, 
but we, we also really want to achieve this particular goal or that particular outcome. Or maybe it's lifestyle. We want to follow Jesus, but we really want to live at this standard of living, have these sort of experiences and have these sort of opportunities and security. See, the lie of syncretism is that you think you've got it all covered. You think, I'm still on God's side and I can have what I want. When really, you're not on God's side. God is a jealous God. He rightly will not share his glory with another. And so when you grab hold of God in Christ, you have to let go of everything else. That's what it means to say that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that he really is Lord. Um, give you an example. What does Jesus say about family? He says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Not a terribly comfortable thing for Jesus to say, is it? Unless you hate even life itself, you can't be my disciple. Single-minded, wholehearted devotion to him. Now, that does not mean that... uh, Relationships are unimportant. What it does mean is relationships are relativised. They're not the number one place. Christ alone has number one place and family must not be our idol. Interesting, another idolatry that gets singled out repeatedly in the New Testament as a danger for God's people, and that means a danger for you and I, is greed. The Apostle Paul identifies greed as a type of idolatry twice, so Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5. And I think there he's just reflecting Jesus' teaching in Luke 16, verse 13, where Jesus says, No slave can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, or wealth. And may I say, wealth or riches are a very powerful master. And that's why Jesus says, It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because to put materialistic riches in second place is very difficult. Just ask the rich young ruler in the Gospels who just couldn't come at Jesus' command to sell all his possessions and give to the poor and follow Jesus. Are we greedy? Now let me say greed is not just the desire to have more, which is what we normally sort of think we're with. Greed is also in the Scriptures, I think. Greed is also not being willing to let go of what you've got. Greed can be that that desire to have more, but it's also that desire to keep it for yourself. And that's a real problem for God's people. I'll quote this time from Paul in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and in their eagerness to be rich some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. What I'm saying to you is I just want you to ask a question. Are you, am I, are we greedy? Are we worshipping the mighty dollar? Now, we're not going to say we are but I wonder if we're syncretists, if we're trying to hold on to the Lord and trying to hold on to our greedy desires to have more and to keep what we've got. 
you might like to ask yourself a few diagnostic questions. I don't know how effective these questions are. I'm, I'm still trying to work them out. But um, I don't know, you can feedback to me later whether you think these are helpful questions or not. Here, I've got three. First is this. Why do I work the number of hours or shifts I do in my work? Why do I work the number of hours or shifts I do in my work? Is the number of hours I work because of need? I actually need to work that number of hours just to have food on the table and a roof over my head and clothes to wear? Or is it because of my desires? I desire to live at this certain standard of living. I aspire to live at that standard of living so therefore I will work this number of hours. Why do we work the number of hours that we work? As a diagnostic question to try to help us understand, am I greedy? Here's another one. How do I think I will secure my earthly financial future? How are you going to secure your earthly financial future? You've got two options. One is store up treasure on earth or Jesus' way, I would suggest, which actually is to seek first the kingdom of God and your heavenly Father who knows your needs will give what you need as well. How are you trying to secure your future financial security? The third question. If we were to uh, write a textbook on, uh, on money and possession, say, and we were to use your life as an example, as a case study, uh, would we put it in the chapter on generosity or would we put your life as an example in the chapter on greed? You can come back to me on whether you think those are helpful diagnostic questions or not. Materialism and greed, friends, is an idol. It's an idol that tempts us all, Christian or not, and it's an idol which I think is present today amongst God's people. This is our golden calf. One of maybe a few. And that's why the New Testament warns us against it. Well, let's return to Exodus 32 after that fairly long sort of exploration of the issue and we're going to quickly then learn from their example. If you've got Exodus 32 open there again, how does God respond to this terrible development of idolatry amongst his people? We see there his just response, verse 7 to 10. Look at verses 7 to 10. See here two things. You see Yahweh's verdict and you see his judgment. His verdict and his judgment. I read from verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, which is very interesting. Why is the Lord saying your people? All the time after now he said my people, the ones I brought, now he's saying your. Why is that? Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, Moses, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. Let's skip down to verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation. What's the Lord's verdict? This is perverse behaviour from a stiff-necked people. It's perverse in the sense that they're deliberately choosing to act in an unacceptable way, contrary to the way that God has set up. It's, it's perverse in that sense. But God knows that this is not just a one-off perversity. He knows that this is a pattern of behaviour. They are, he says, stiff-necked. I want to get hold of one of those um, neck braces, right? Because I think, and then get a volunteer. And that's such a shame because that would have been fun. And... 
put a neck brace on, right? And start walking around. He says, my people are stiff-necked. So the Lord calls to them, but they're just going on. They, they, they can't turn around. They can't do that. They won't turn around and listen. They are willfully stiff-necked, resolute in their direction. And when you think about the history of God's people, as I tried to outline before, he's right, isn't he? His verdict is absolutely right. They are stubborn and stiff-necked, committed to idolatry, committed to unfaithfulness. They're stubborn and stiff-necked. Well, what's his judgment? It's there in verse 10. Basically, Moses, you better get out of here because I'm going to consume them in my wrath and then I'll start again with you. So the Lord is still being faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He intends to make Abraham's descendants a great nation but he says, forget this 600,000 people that I've got. They're all gone and Moses, I'll just start again with you. That seems a pretty full-on sort of punishment, doesn't it, for idolatry? I'm going to wipe them all out. Not one or two, 600,000 plus. I think it's fascinating that we are more horrified by the punishment than by the sin. We are more horrified that God would say, 600,000 people, I'm going to wipe out my people. We're horrified by that. The scale of that is unimaginable. And yet we're not really horrified by the very sin that has provoked it because it is a just response actually to the sin. You can tell the seriousness of the crime by looking at the punishment that's meted out. We're not so horrified. We say, it's just idolatry. They've just sort of got it a bit wrong. Just, you know, isn't that okay? Just... The extent of his judgment should tell us something about the seriousness with which God views what's been going on here. He really is the only true God and he really is rightly jealous for his name. The sort of jealousy the Lord have isn't that petty or catty sort of jealousy where we want attention for ourselves. Oh, I hate the fact that they're getting all the attention, I'd like it for myself. Which is That sort of jealousy is normally just born out of insecurity, really. Insecurity or pride. That's not the sort of jealousy that the Lord has. It's a righteous sort of jealousy. It's, a sort of, it's right for my wife to be jealous for my affections. That my affections should not be shared with anyone else, but with her alone. That's a right sort of jealousy. And God, as the one true God, is rightly jealous for his name. He is the only God. Why should his creatures, who he's made in his image, worship things that are not the real God? So he's rightly jealous for his name. And his judgment there is to wipe them out. But what's really significant, I think, there is actually his wiping of them out represents, I think, it's a breaking of the covenant that he established with them. That's why he says, your people, who you brought out, Moses, He's, he's abandoned the my people. He's, he's indicating here that actually my relationship with this people is over. This is not a recoverable situation because the relationship, the covenant is dead. And in fact, if you want to sort of that marked out in symbolic terms, when Moses comes down the mountain, what does he do with the, two, with the Ten Commandments that he's received from the Lord? He smashes them in full view of the people. Why does he do that? Because it says these were the sort of This was the covenant in summary form and it's over. He says, because of what you've done, it's over, people. That covenant is ended. 
It's a very serious outcome for God's people. Okay, well, before Yahweh executes his just response, Moses then intervenes in what I've called a prophetic intercession. We'll finish with this, verses 11 to 14. Whilst he's up there on the mountain, before he comes down and smashes the tablets, Moses intercedes for the people with the Lord. And uh, you can have a look there in verses 11 to 13, what he says. Moses, though, is basically asking Yahweh to show steadfast love to these disobedient people. And one of the things he does there, he, he, I think he draws on one of the things that God himself had said back at the Ten Commandments. God had said this. He said, I'm the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. This is the key bit. But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me. And what Moses does, on the basis of that, Moses makes a particular appeal. He says, you loved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you made promises to them. Because of your love for them, have mercy on this disobedient people. Not on the basis of your covenant necessarily established with this particular people because that covenant is now going to be over. But on your basis of your love for those guys, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, show mercy to this disobedient people. And on the basis of his intercession, verse 14 tells us that the Lord changed his mind about this disaster he planned to bring on the people. He shows mercy and compassion and grace and love to these people who don't deserve it. Now, about the, there's three things, I think, just to, to finish with that you can notice about what happens in these couple of verses. Uh, two things are vitally important and one thing is interesting but, frankly, not that terribly important. Right? The thing that's interesting and not terribly important is this. God changed his mind? How does God, who is sovereign, who knows all things, how does God change his mind? If God knows the future, doesn't he know what he'll do and in what sense does he really change his mind? And you can spend hours on this, right? And there's many, many pages of books written about it. Um, I say that's terribly interesting but actually not the point of this particular passage. I've got things to say about it so if you want to talk to me about it over afternoon too, you can come talk to me about it but actually it's not the main game here. The main game here is two things. The main games are this. First of all, it's about the mercy of God to his people who don't deserve it. That's what this incident tells us. The mercy of God to his people who don't deserve it. God's people have said, God, we don't give a toss about you. We're going to do our own thing. And yet in his mercy and compassion, God relents. And in fact, it's not even as though the people are repentant. Because a bit later on when Moses comes down the mountain, he smashes the Ten Commandments and then he says to them, come to me if you're on the Lord's side. Right, to all the people. And only the tribe of Levi come to him, which is Moses' own sort of tribe. The others, when their question is put to them explicitly, come to me if you're on Yahweh's side, they don't come. This is an unrepentant people. And yet God shows them mercy and doesn't wipe them all out. He does call them to repentance and the way he calls them to repentance is a bit shocking for us because then... 3,000 of the people are executed as a way of trying to indicate to the people, I think, that this is a really serious thing that you've done by going against the Lord and not wanting to be on his side anymore. And so 3,000 die. Mind you, that is, I think, a merciful judgment 
3,000 as opposed to 600,000 plus. But the first thing you notice is God really is being merciful to these people. Merciful and gracious and loving and faithful. Second thing to note here is that God's mercy is in response to Moses' intercession. God responds with mercy when Moses intercedes and he intercedes twice in the, in the passage, verse, uh, per, verses 11 to 14, but then a bit later in verses 30 to 34. And it's fascinating, a bit later on in the Bible when reflecting on Moses' intercession, Psalm 106, it says, Moses, the Lord's chosen one, stood in the breach before the Lord to turn the Lord's wrath from destroying his people. Moses stands in the breach before the Lord. The image of a breach is um, a defensive wall around a city, right? And there's an attacking force, but in this case, God's people are in the city and the attacking force is the Lord himself in his wrath. And he, he breaks a breach in the wall. And what happens? Moses stands in the breach to turn the Lord's wrath from destroying his people. He intercedes, but he pleads for his people. In fact, in verses 30 to 34, I think Moses is actually saying, Lord, take me instead of them. Actually offers himself, I think, as a substitute, as a representative. And what I just want to say, when you start to see these things, you see the great mercy of God on the undeserving and you see Moses standing in the breach. As a Christian, you must start to think, I'm starting to see the richness of what the Lord Jesus has done, the one who is the greater mediator than Moses, who stood in the breach for all of us, though we were immersed in idolatry. And so I think the way to, uh, to walk away from this passage are three things. Walk away, friends, being wary of idolatry. Pursue God wholeheartedly with single-minded devotion. Secondly, I'd say, know the character of your God. That he is just, yes, and he is jealous for his name, but he is merciful and compassionate on his wayward people. And thirdly, give thanks for the mighty mediation of the Lord Jesus who stood in the breach for us, the one who's even greater than the Lord's servant Moses. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself truly to us in these words of Scripture in the way that you have dealt with your people through the ages, in the way that you have provided a mediator for your people, in the way you show great mercy and compassion to your people. We pray, Father, that you might empower us by your spirit and fortify us by your word and in the encouragement of having brothers and sisters in Christ so that we might flee idolatry and pursue you with wholehearted devotion to your glory and praise in the world. Amen.